By the grace of God, we made it through the fourth of five warning passages. And uh, we are now into a section here that is meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be an encouragement to those uh, who have professed faith and are, have been a waffling, if you will, wavering. Some have even been returning back to Judaism. You may recall in chapter 10 and verses 19 to 25, what we saw was an invitation for those who were not yet all in. To draw near, he tells them in verse 21. To hold fast uh, without wavering in verse 23. Uh, and then uh, to, uh, to stir up one another in love and good deeds in verse 24. And to not forsake the assembly as is the habit of some, and some are apparently doing in verse 25. And then following camp came, uh, after that, one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. As the author of Hebrews details that fourth warning uh, passage in the book of Hebrews against the apostate. And so let's review that quickly in verses 26 to 31, just to bring us up to speed. Verse 26a we saw in chapter 10, for if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So an apostate we know is someone who has received that truth. They have full knowledge of the gospel truth and yet have rejected that truth. They have heard the truth of the gospel. They, their mind has been enlightened and they understand it completely. They have been in church. They have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have sat under the clear exposition of God's word. And then they decided to opt out. And they have decided to fall away. But notice carefully that this falling away is deliberate. It is willful. If they willfully fall away. And then we see in the second part of that verse that if you reject that sacrifice, what sacrifice is that? The sacrifice of Christ shed blood as atonement for our sins, if you reject that, then there is no other sacrifice for sins. If you reject your only means of salvation, by which means do you believe that you will be saved? Verse 27 answers that question. What awaits those who deliberately choose the sin of apostasy, who deliberately, willfully fall away after receiving the full knowledge of the truth, a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Those who reject Christ are at war with God, they're at enmity with God, and are therefore his enemies in that sense. As such, they will receive the just punishment from God that is reserved for his enemies. But why does God regard apostasy as such a grievous sin compared to other sins. Then we saw in verses 28 and 29 that he takes an argument from the Old Testament and applies it here. Look, he says, uh, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of Christ. So we saw in the first part of that, 
The argument, again, proceeds from the lesser to the greater. This is a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we know under the Old Covenant that the punishment for willfully, intentionally sinning against God was death, was physical death. And it was so severe that it required two or three witnesses. You couldn't just say, well, I think somebody's not walking with you. I think, uh, I think he's rebelling against uh, God. We should kill him. You had to have two or three witnesses because it was so severe before that could happen. You could just make an accusation against somebody. It was that immediate, that severe, that final in judgment. In comparison, the threefold witnesses that will be used against those who willfully fall away is in our text right there. Here we see it. The first witness against the apostate is he has trampled underfoot the Son of God. So, in other words, an apostate won't be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, well, you know, listen, I, I, didn't, I didn't really know. I didn't really know. And besides, I don't think that's true. I think I live my life a little bit differently than, than uh, the accusation against me. And first of all, let me just tell you, there will be no defense when you stand before God. He already knows your heart. You're not going to argue your way out of it. Some of you are very persuasive in your argumentation. There will be no argumentation when you stand before God. Your hearts will be laid bare before the only just and justifier, the King of Kings. That's it. There will be no, hey, I think I can talk my way out of that. That may work in this world. It will not work as you stand before the King. First witness against the apostate is you have trampled underfoot. That word means to treat that as something wor worthless. It's like kicking up the dust off your feet in somebody's face. It's like uh, scraping the gum off the bottom of your shoe is the idea. It's something that worthless. The second witness here against the apostate, we see that it's regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified or set apart. Not only has the apostate rejected the person of Jesus Christ, they've also rejected his work. The atoning work, the shed blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean of all iniquity. They've treated it as profane, as common, as no big deal, if you would say. It's a complete rejection of his atoning work. And then finally we see that they third witness against the apostate is that they've insulted the spirit of grace. This is very similar as we looked at in, from Matthew 12, the unpardonable sin. We looked at that passage before. You could do a lot of things and still repent and, 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 and be forgiven. But once you completely reject the Holy Spirit, when you completely reject Christ and his shed blood, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he points to the Son. There is no hope. For a guilty sinner to spit in God's face when his spirit offers a free pardon made possible through the death of God's Son is simply unpardonable. Unpardonable. Then in verse 30 we saw, as we looked at last week here, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The punishment is so severe that God himself executes the punishment. God himself doesn't send angels. God himself is the one who lays forth the judgment. 
God says, vengeance is mine. If you've rejected his son, if you've rejected his shut blood and atoning work on the cross, if you've insulted the Holy Spirit, then God says, vengeance is mine against that person. Verse 31 tells us, just to give an idea, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Although the apostates had formerly been part of God's people, their rebellion had put them on the side of God's adversaries. It is a fearful thing, the text tells us, for an enemy of God to experience his just wrath. And note who it is that's most in danger of committing this terrible sin of turning away from Christ. We often think, oh, that person, they're such a horrible sinner. Those outside, uh, those in the world, they're such terrible sinners. Surely they'll face the judgment of God. But scripture tells us the most terrifying judgment is for the one who hears the gospel, understands the gospel, has been a part of this community of faith, perhaps perhaps even taking partake in communion, but has never, ever surrendered their life to Christ. And then they willfully, deliberately walk away and never come back. There is no greater punishment. So, that's where we left off the last few weeks. As sobering as that is, the author of Hebrews is now going to change. He's now going to say, now, listen, I've given you that warning, but let me encourage you not to do that. Let me encourage you to to do what you've done in the past, to not walk away from it. If you know what the consequences are, don't do it. Remain steadfast. Let me give you an illustration of what our text is like. There was a warm sun, on a warm summer afternoon, there were three young people who decided to hike along a five-mile stretch of the picturesque Manistee River in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And they started out with lots of energy and lots of vigor, taking the first few hundred yards with ease. But then the path began to twist and turn as it followed the river's course. And they trudged through these low, muddy areas. They kept getting stuck, and they scrambled up these steep ridges. And then there were fallen trees that were blocking the path, which they had to climb over, crawl under. Then they had to cross some of the creeks that flowed into the river and either jumped or walked carefully along narrow logs. And they weren't sure how far they had to go or what laid ahead of them there. Yet they knew there were going to be friends that were waiting at the end of the trail, so they had to keep going. And there are great parallels between that obstacle-ridden course, that walk, and many who profess the Christian life. Many begin, begin their Christian walk with great vigor. They are excited about their profession. But it isn't long before they come across some twists and some turns and some temptations and some trials. And then many professing Christians get mired in the mud of mediocrity, if you will. They plunge from the peaks of pride and all all sorts of dangers and difficulties block their path. Not sure what's ahead, many get weary and discouraged in their walk. 
It is to the weary and the, dis and the discouraged that this passage is talking about here today. Now, I want to take you to another passage before we actually get to our verses. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, if you will, chapter 8. Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. It's a very familiar passage for you. This is Jesus in the parable of the sower. Notice here in verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed, and some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil, grew up, and produced a crop of a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and, he, and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation they fall away. That's our word, apostate. Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, which are the ones who have heard... And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Notice here that some of that seed, some of the word of God fell beside the road. The birds ate it, never took root, sprouted. That represents unbelievers, again, who hear the gospel. They don't understand it or believe it. The other seed fell on the rocky ground where there was no depth of soil, quickly sprang up. But since it had no roots, it withered. This represented those who hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But as soon as affliction and persecution arises, they quickly fall away. The third soil is infested with thorns. The seed sprouts, but the thorns, representing worries, riches, and pleasures of this life, choke out the word so that it does not bring forth any fruit. The fourth type of is a good soil, representing those who hear, understand, accept the word, and bear fruit with perseverance. Notice it is only the fourth type of soil that represents true believers. They have faith to the preserving of the soul. The rocky soil and the thorny soil both make a profession of faith for a while, but eventually fall back to destruction or shrink back to destruction. In other words, genuine saving faith endures trials and bears fruit. And the amount of fruit will vary. Some a hundredfold, we see in Matthew's description. Some thirtyfold. Some 60-fold. 
but there will be some observable evidence of a transformed heart. Now listen, true believers, we also may fail under pressure. Let's not forget about Peter. Peter denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. Every believer struggles daily against sin, not always victoriously. But if God had changed the heart, and if his saving life is in the vine from John 15, he's connected to the vine, if he's grafted in, if he's part of Christ, Christ is in him and he is in Christ, that person will repent, they'll endure in faith, and they'll bear fruit unto eternal life. This is the focus of our passage here again. This is the target audience. He's speaking to those yet who are not yet all in. He's speaking to the other soils. They have a full knowledge. They have an epigenosis. They have not just a knowledge about something, but an intimate knowledge, a personal connection. They have heard the gospel as clearly as they can be presented, and they fully understand it. They have made a profession of faith. They have sat amongst the wheat week after week after week after week, and yet their hearts never surrender. They're not yet all in. But listen, they're not apostates yet either. They haven't fallen away. And it's to them that the author of Hebrews is saying, I just explained to you what the consequences are if you do fall away. But I don't think you're like that. Don't let that happen. He's standing at the, at, the, at the narrow gate. Christ is standing at the narrow gate saying, Come in, do not fall away. Do not come all the way in. Do not fall away. These are professing Christians on the heels of one of the most terrifying warnings in all of Scripture. He's telling them, he wants to encourage these professing believers, Don't throw it all away. Don't throw it all away. Don't throw away your confession of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel message. It is to these professing Christians, many who are weary and discouraged, that the author of Hebrews wants to encourage in this passage this morning. How can they accomplish that? That answer we find in verse 32. So let's look at that together, shall we? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But... In contrast to verse 26 to 31, in contrast to that terrifying warning, he says, remember the former days. Remember the former days. When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Point number one, remember the former days. What does he mean by that? The former days refers to the time just after their profession of faith. And the author is drawing them back. He's drawing their minds back to how God had worked in their lives during that time. In spite of the very difficult trials. His point is, you've endured these trials and you continued in faith. Then you can do it again when adversity strikes. Do not fall away. Don't throw it all away. Notice that word, enlightened. Enlightened. This is a Greek word for tizo which we get the word means to illuminate or to shine forth the light. He said, you've been illuminated. You've been enlightened. The enlightened again means to illuminate. Now, 
Unbelievers are described in Scripture as being spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4 4, right? They're unable to see the light. Their minds, their minds have been blinded. They're unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But only God can command the light to shine out of darkness. Right after 2 Corinthians 4 4, 2 Corinthians 4 6 tells us that God shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Before God opened our eyes, we didn't even see our need for a Savior. We thought that we were good enough to get into heaven by our own righteousness. We had no idea how terrible our sins were or how holy God is. We did not fully understand the fact that the Son of God gave himself on the cross to pay the debt for our sin. But then while we're still in darkness, God graciously opened our eyes. One of my favorite testimonies, someone described their salvation as, I was stumbling around in a dark room thinking I knew where I was going, and God turned on the light and I saw exactly where I was. Incidentally, tonight you're going to hear some wonderful testimonies. You will be encouraged tonight. I encourage you to come back tonight for the baptismal service. I remind you from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, that apostates had experienced some degrees of enlightenment, and yet they were not truly saved. It is possible to have a fair amount of theological understanding and yet be lost. Some men have devoted their lives to studying the Bible and writing scholarly books, but these scholars have never repented of their sins. They've never put their trust in Christ as their Savior. They're not yet all in. They've been enlightened, but they are headed for eternal destruction. Unfortunately, we see that more and more in the news today of people who have started wonderful ministries and are pastors of churches, and everything looks good on the outside. Writing books, lots of people coming to hear them, coming to see them. And then we find out four or five years later that they're not really a Christian. They've walked away deliberately. So the first way he tells them, the first way he encourages them, these folks who are thinking, these professing Christians who are thinking about moving away, he says to, the first way to remain strong in their faith and not throw away their confidence is to remember the former days. Remember how God had enlightened them to their full understanding of the gospel. Then in verse 33 and 34, we see the second point on how to not throw away their confidence. He tells them in verse 33 and 34, remain strong even when you suffer loss. Remain strong even when you suffer loss. Let's look at that, verse 33 and 34. He says, uh, you endured a great conflict of suffering at the end of verse 32, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. These professing Christians had known great zeal when they made their first profession of Christ. They were excited to do the Lord's work. They wanted to tell everybody about it. But as soon as they identified themselves as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the attacks started coming. Incidentally, as people come to faith, please don't tell them that their life, their best life is now. 
their, their best life here is now. Because their best life actually is in Christ and it's after this life. These professed Christians had known great zeal when they had first come to faith in Christ. And not long after they professed Christ, they encountered these difficult trials. Notice that the author calls it a great conflict of sufferings. That word conflict is where we get the word athletic from. It means to struggle like an athlete struggles mightily in combat or in, in competition. That's the idea of that word. It's like a hard-fought athletic contest between your soul and Satan trying to wrench that back out again and get you to fall back, go back to your worldly ways. If you could just ratchet up the heat a little bit, will you just abandon your profession of faith? If things get a little tough financially, will you, will you go back to your worldly ways again, or will you remain strong in your, in your faith? Some of them were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. That word public spectacle is where we get our word theater from. In other words, they were paraded up in front of everybody and ridiculed and mocked. They were scorned. Oh, they used to be one of us. Now they're Christians. Let's all make fun of them. Let's put them up and show them how ignorant they are to become Christians. How different they are from the rest of us. As you know, when someone embraces Jesus, they are often made a spectacle. They are ridiculed. They are rejected. Oftentimes by their own friends and family. Some of these professing Christians had been imprisoned. And those who remained free showed sympathy to the prisoners and publicly identified themselves with them. Do you know how hard that would be? You identify yourself as a Christian, we throw you in prison. And if you go and visit to minister to them, you identify yourself as one of them. You're, you're really inviting persecution upon yourself by ministering to those who were put in prison for their faith. Think of, the, think of how strong your faith must be to endure that, to willingly go and say that. They visited them. They brought them food and clothing. Jails didn't provide that at that time. And some of them lost their property, either by corrupt officials taking it or angry mobs raiding their houses and stealing everything in it and then leveling the house afterwards. And so the author of Hebrews says, I want you to remember, that was a very trying time for you all after your profession of faith. But what did you do? You endured you remained steadfast. You persevered. You didn't fall away from Christ when the heat was turned up. You stayed faithful to him. He says, I want you to remember that and then reflect upon it. I want you to think about the significance of that because if you persevere, then you can persevere now. Even if you suffer great loss. Look at it, verse 34. Here's the key word in here. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted how? Joyfully, you should underline that in your Bible or highlight it. Joyfully, the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They didn't just endure through the loss of property, they accepted it joyfully. Today, 
Many Christians would balk at such unfair treatment. They'd file a lawsuit to recover what they lost, plus damages for emotional suffering. But these new professing believers had such profound joy in knowing Christ, they actually were singing praises as angry mobs were hauling their stuff out of their homes. These were not rocky ground or thorny ground believers, my friends. The only way that they could joyfully accept the seizure of their property was they knew that they had a better possession and a lasting one. It's not what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. They knew that Jesus had gone to prepare a place for them to dwell with him forever, that he was coming again to take them to be with him there forever. So while it was hard to lose their earthly possessions, their focus had shifted from the temporal to the eternal. I was reading an article about a, uh, Christians who are suffering persecution around the world. I don't know if you know this or not now, but Christianity is the most persecuted religion around the world. By far. It's not even close. And they asked this young missionary, how much persecution have you endured? And his answer was, just enough. What did he mean by that? Just enough to separate those who were all in and those who were not. And when you have a church that is truly all in, when the body of Christ is all in, and the tares have been separated. That's a very powerful church, and God moves mightily through it. That's why persecution only increases the spread of the gospel, because you weed out those who are just along for the ride. As soon as the heat gets turned up a little bit, they're gone. It's too much. I don't want to do it. It's easier to go with the crowd. It's easier to walk away. So the first way to have enduring faith in times of trial is to remember your former days, my friends. Remember how God worked in your life in the past. Remember how he turned your life around. Remember how he saved you. He opened your eyes to his wonderful truth. Secondly, remain strong even when you suffer loss. Some of you here have suffered great loss. It says remain strong. Remember your new joy in knowing Christ. Remember how faithful he was to bring you through those trials. He tells them, remembering these things will help you endure by faith in this present time. And then finally, in verse 35, he tells them, retain your confidence in the Lord. Retain your confidence in the Lord. Look at that together. It says, verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now the writer exhorts them based on their previous experience of walking by faith. Don't throw away your confidence. As faith has sustained them in the past, so faith can sustain them in their present. That phrase cast away means to fling it away. Just don't, don't throw away your profession of faith. Don't fling it away like it's something worthless, like you're just throwing it out of the scrap heap. He says, no, don't do that. Because you have for yourselves a better possession than what you think you have in this earthly life. You actually have an inheritance and a treasure that cannot be destroyed, that is lasting forever. 
That's what you want to cling to. That's what you want to hang on to. He's not talking about confidence in themselves. He's talking about confidence in Christ. I've heard many Christians say, you've got to believe in yourself. That's a very worldly idea, my friends. Not a very biblical one. You know what you have to believe in? You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he is God and put on human flesh and died on the cross for your sins. And on the third day, he was, I mean, he was buried, dead, buried, crucified. On the third day, he rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. That is the key. Notice that word confidence. This is the fourth and last time the author uses that word. In chapter 3, verse 6, he said, Hold fast your confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In chapter 4, verse 16, he said, Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In chapter 10, verse 19, he said, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Confidence, confidence, confidence. But none of that confidence is confidence in us. It is confidence in Christ. Saving faith, my friends, has a great reward. Heaven and the eternal glory with Christ, with him forever. My friends, our passage today makes it clear that the author of Hebrews intends this whole section of this book to be an encouragement to professing believers. To those, this is not a blast against people who have already fallen away. He's already explained for those who have fallen away and are never coming back what the consequences of that decision will be. He's speaking to those who are wavering, who are questioning themselves. Is this worth it? Is this worth giving up my life for here and now? He says, look, you have persevered through difficult times, and now you're struggling with your trust in Christ, and I want you to continue to trust in Christ. Remember back to that time when your faith was really put to the test and you you persevered. He says, I want you to do that now. I want you to hang on no matter how you feel. I want you to continue to trust him even when you suffer great loss. I want you to continue to trust Christ. How do you do that? He says, remember your former days. Remember your former days. Remember how God worked in your life, how he turned your life around, how he saved you, how he illuminated, opened up your eyes, enlightened you. Secondly, remain strong even when you suffer great loss. Even when you suffer the loss of friendships. Even when you suffer the loss of family ties. Whatever it is, he says, remain fast, remain steadfast, hang on here. Third, retain your confidence in the Lord. Don't, do not throw away your confidence in the Lord. Many of you have heard of the famous high-wire airless, the Flying Melendez. Remember the Flying Melendez? And their tragic death of their leader, the great Carl Melendez, and he died in 1978. Shortly after the great Melendez fell to his death, he did that when he was going across a 75-foot high-wire in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. And his wife, who was also an airless, discussed that faithful San Juan walk, and she said, All Carl thought about for three straight months prior to that was falling. It was the first time he'd ever thought about falling. And it seemed to me that he put all of his energies into not falling rather than walking the tightrope. 
Mrs. Melinda added that her husband even went so far as to personally supervise the installation of the tightrope to make sure that it was secured properly. First time. Something he'd never done before. And Melinda's loss of confidence contributed to his death, even though his past performances had proved he had done it thousands of times. Walking across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. He would walk across blindfolded, sometimes with people on his back and just a pole and on his shoulders, walk across that, blindfolded. He had great experience, been delivered every single time. Spiritually, my friends, no true believer has to surrender to the Melinda factor. Because our confidence rests not in ourselves, but in God. But the author of Hebrews is saying, don't throw away your confidence. He means not to cast away their confident confession of Christ in the midst of trials. He's already warned them of the consequences of doing so, but here today he wants to encourage them. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on in your faith until you reap the rewards of your salvation. My friends, if you are here today and you're not sure of your salvation, maybe perhaps you've made a profession of faith, I encourage you to remember your former days. Remember the zeal you had when you first made that profession. Remember how God had opened up your eyes, how excited you were to tell others about Christ, how excited you were to live and to serve him. Remember to remain strong even when you suffer loss. Remember how God has carried you through all of those times faithfully. Finally, retain your confidence in the Lord, not your confidence in yourself, but in the Lord. And I invite you, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, that today would be the day you surrender your life. It's one thing to think you're saved. It's another to know you're saved. I would encourage you to know that without a shadow of a doubt. But I tell you, folks, that I believe that there's a lesson here for believers as well. To remain strong in your faith, even in the midst of trials. It is easy for us to fall away when we suffer great loss in our life. It's easy for us to fall away when the flames of adversity get turned way up in our lives. As we look at things and go, how, how come God would allow this to keep happening in my life? Remain strong. Remember your former days also. Retain your confidence in the Lord. My friends, this is how you get through these trials. You remember when you were first saved in that great zeal. It hasn't gone away. You're just allowing the things of the world to try and temper it down. You're starting to believe the lies. You need to remain strong. Remember those former days. And remember how God brings you, has brought you through every one of those trials. You weren't even sure how you were going to make it through. When the loss was so great and it hurt so bad, it was hard to even breathe. God has carried you through each and every one of those trials. Our God is faithful to not give you more than you can handle and to always provide a way out. Let's not forget that. Retain your confidence in the Lord. My friends, the reward for you to retain your confidence in the Lord far outshines anything this world has to offer. This is just temporal. 
If we're fortunate enough by the grace of God to live 80 to 100 years, how long is that in the span of eternity? And yet we make decisions as if those 80 to 100 years are the significant parts of our lives, and they're not. It's that fast in the span of eternity. You need to keep your thoughts heaven-bound in the midst of your trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, again for the lesson here. Lord, after several weeks of just being a very difficult message to hear about those who had fallen away and were never returning, we now, Lord, hear what an encouragement it is that these professing believers had demonstrated faith in their lives. And Lord, that encourages us today as well. If there's any in our midst, fathers, you know, you know their hearts. We do not. You know. Lord, I pray that they would be all in. That they wouldn't just bring their toes up to the to the edge of the narrow gate. They would come all the way in and know without a doubt they're a child of yours. And Father, for those who've already made that decision, oh Lord, I just pray, strengthen them. Many are in the midst of great trials right now. Lord, their lives have been affected by great adversity. Father, help them to remember their former days. Lord, help them to remain steadfast even when they suffer loss. Help them to retain their confidence in the Lord. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said.